So uh, we're going to do a quick review for the past couple of classes before we uh, get into the, the sacrament of confirmation, just to get the juices flowing with regard to sacramental theology. Um, if you weren't here the past two times and you didn't listen to the stuff uh, online, uh, you'll have that. So uh, what is a sacrament? Who wants to, to jump in and say what a sacrament is? Seth. Good. That's an excellent uh, way to to put it. Uh, let's let's go a little bit further. Who else? What other things about sacraments do we know? So there's signs, right? They point us somewhere. Good. Excellent. What else? Yep. Good. Yeah. That's excellent. So uh, dispersing grace, a sign, encounter with Christ. What else? What other aspects? Could we point to? Yes. They're physical. They're physical. So there's something physical. They have form and uh, and matter, right? There's some sort of matter involved, right? Good. What else? There's like seven of them. There's seven of them. <laughs> Good. Yeah, excellent. Uh, who, who wants to be bold? And uh, what are the seven sacraments? Good. Marriage. Eucharist. The Eucharist. Baptism. Baptism. Reconciliation. Good. Um, holy orders. Holy orders. Excellent. Last rites. Last rites. Confirmation. Confirmation. Good. Excellent. She gets the extra credit. That's good. All right. So uh, there's seven sacraments in the church. A sacrament is a sign which affects what it signifies. An efficacious sign of grace. This is how the catechism talks about it. Um, instituted by Christ. Um, we encounter Christ in it. Um, entrusted to the church by which divine life is dispersed. Right there. Or dispensed to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, so uh, it's important. And one of the things, I guess the two aspects that I'd like to to focus on or for you to especially remember um, are the efficacy, right? That sacraments affect what they signify. They cause what they show. And that uh, they are encounters with Christ. In the sacraments, um, St. Leo the Great says that in the sacraments, we the powers which flow for, or, which were once seen in our Savior, have passed into his sacraments. Um, so when Christ walked the earth, he healed people by touching them. He forgave sins by using words. He, uh, you know, did these things through words and through uh, actions. And they, so in the sacraments, we encounter Christ. We encounter Christ and Grace is given to us through them. Um, so let's talk about grace. Um, we talked a little bit about grace last time. What is grace? What is grace? Gift. gift? Good. Yeah. What else? A gift from who, Suzanne? God. From God. And what type of gift is it? It's a free gift of grace, a free gift of God. Excellent. What else? Yep, Seth? It's merciful. Okay. Anything else? Okay, so you, you, you don't deserve grace. Yeah, initial gift of grace. Good. 
So uh, the best definition that I, I think you can you can give of grace, if you wanted to give just like a little, little bite-sized thing, is a participation in the life of the Trinity, right? a, a sharing in God's own life. That's what grace is. Um, and we kind of talk about it in, in that definition really encapsulates what is known as habitual or sanctifying <coughs> grace, grace which makes pleasing to God. Um, makes us like unto Christ. Um, and then there's also, we in the Catholic tradition, we call, there's a, a sort of a distinction made between that type of grace, which is a habitual state, a quality adhering in the, in the person, um, and actual graces, which are given in a particular moment. So for example, the grace of uh, being moved to conversion, or the grace of being moved to help the person that you don't want to help, uh, or the grace of being able to uh, be bold and speak when you're a little bit afraid of speaking, or even the movement of your heart towards prayer or towards uh, going to Mass. Or it doesn't have to be necessarily something difficult, but all of those are graces. They're actual graces. So all of the sacraments, they confer grace. Three of them, uh, which are the sacraments uh, of baptism, confirmation, and holy orders. They also confer a character, which is a stable disposition, a permanent spiritual mark on the soul, which makes us uh, capable of doing or acting in a way that we weren't able to do or able to act before. So, for example, in baptism, we receive the ability... um, to call upon God in the midst of the church as Father. In confirmation, and this is what we're going to talk about today, we receive the ability to spread and defend the faith in a particular way. So all of the sacraments get their efficacy from Christ, particularly from his passion, death and resurrection. So the Paschal mystery, Um, his total self-giving for our salvation, merits for us these graces of the sacraments. Sacraments, finally, uh, to kind of close this review of the sacraments, they fill in the gap between Christ glorified in heaven and the church on earth. There are moments of encounter then between men and the church, which is Christ's sacrament. If you think about the church is the sign, the visible sign of Christ in the world and the mystical body of Christ. This is what we mean by when we say the mystical body of Christ is the church, um, who is the sacrament of the Father. Christ points to the Father, the church points to Christ, and the sacraments are those actual moments of encounter with, with the great sacrament of Christ. Baptism, then, uh, is the first of those sacraments, and we said that baptism is Um, the first of the sacraments of initiation, which are baptism, confirmation, and the Holy Eucharist. Um, So does anyone remember, um, so baptism comes from that word to meaning to plunge, right? So you die with Christ and you rise with Christ to new life. What are the form and the matter of baptism? What do you got? Water. Good. Excellent. Yeah, I heard it. Good. Water, uh, under what aspect of water? Cleansing. Cleansing. Good. Washing. Yeah. 
That's, that's definitely there. But, and also kind of the danger of water and the fact that it's also uh, associated with life. So cleansing, death, and life. So you go down into the water, you die, you rise to new life, your uh, water is poured over you, or you go into the water, and you're cleansed of sin and reborn to new life. And the form, then? What's the form? I actually want all you all to know uh, what the form of baptism is, uh, just in case you ever encounter someone who's dying who wants to be baptized. Uh, just, just, you know, off the, on the off chance. Uh, so uh, what's the form of baptism? How, how would Father Doug baptize someone? He's got water in his hand. Is that good matter? Yeah. Okay. There's a debate in the... But it's, it's in the common estimation of men is that water. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what's the form? How would he baptize? If I was unbaptized, how would he baptize me? Good. Pour water on my head and say. Yes, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Good. Um, what are the effects of baptism? What does baptism do for Okay, washes away original sin and all actual sin. If you were, uh, if you're, if you're old, if you're over the age of reason, or thereabout. What else? Okay, yeah, in a in a certain sense, yep, absolutely. Good, yeah. So uh, pr- probably the two, like if you were just to 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 spit out two effects of baptism that are. Primary, right, makes you an adopted child of God, washes away original sin. So there's like um, grace cleansing and grace elevating happening right there. Good. Um, So today we want to jump in then to confirmation. Confirmation is the next of the sacraments of initiation. And um, what is confirmation? This is is a a great question. What is, we we kind of talked about... um, in general, or we talked about it a little bit because someone asked the question about uh, the separation from from baptism. Like, why why are they separated? I think over here, I can't remember who asked that question the other day. Um, what is confirmation? Confirmation, let me start by giving a, a negative definition here. Confirmation is not some sort of graduation. It's not some sort of like just saying that this is my faith and, and I'm going to uh, live it. It's not a graduation from religious education or a personal choice to accept faith. This is a poor understanding of what confirmation is. And if, you, uh, if you're becoming Catholic as an adult and then you start to talk to people who were confirmed as teenagers, many of them will think that that's what confirmation is. So uh, please uh, kindly admonish them, instruct them. If, if you, yes, if you, uh, if you encounter that. So originally, we've got to go back uh, to the, the first centuries, the fathers of the church. Originally, confirmation and baptism were celebrated uh, right next to each other almost all the time. Right? And this is actually the way that it is for those of you who will be baptized. Uh, you, will be confer- you will be baptized. Then you'll, come, uh, you'll go out of the church, maybe change your clothes because you'll be all wet, and come back in. And we'll pour some oil all over your head. It'll be great. And you'll be confirmed um, immediately. And then, uh, and then you, you'll receive 
the Eucharist for the first time after that. So originally it was celebrated with baptism, and these two sacraments are unified together in uh, very closely bound to one another. But that changed in the Latin rite of Catholicism, and we talked about that last time. In the Eastern Church, it continued to be the case that uh, the sacraments of baptism and confirmation, or it's also known as chrismation in the Eastern Church, um, were kept together. But in the Latin Church, there was a desire to continue to have the bishop be the original minister, the, the, the minister of confirmation. And because it was impossible for the bishop to get everywhere, and you know, you think about baptism, it's necessary for salvation. So you want to baptize that baby uh, immediately or soon after birth. Um, the bishop couldn't be there for that. So he came um, and would confirm a group of people, and slowly the time got further and further from, uh, from baptism to confirmation, and it became the tradition of the church in the Latin rite, um, which is what you're all here for, uh, to delay confirmation until about the age of reason. So you would receive confirmation and the Holy Eucharist together, um, Father Doug mentioned last week, and this is this is good, right? That there, while the sacraments are efficacious always, whenever they're received, they can um, they always confer grace, they always confer the character, but uh, the re- the recipient's disposition does uh, affect kind of their ability to use the graces that are there. Um, and so there's, a, there's a, a fittingness that one who is to spread and defend the faith, that's one of the effects that we're going to get to. I'm going to get, I'll come to you, Seth. Um, it's fitting that it be at the age of reason or beyond. Yes, yeah, Seth. So in the East Orthodox Church, will you be baptized and confirmed while you're infant still, or will yeah. they delay that until you're age of reason? No, no, you'd be baptized and confirmed as an infant. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, so I just want to make a distinction. Seth used the word Eastern Orthodox. Um, so the Orthodox, uh, though they have valid sacraments, are not in communion with the Latin Rite Church. There are people called Eastern Rite Catholics um, who are in communion with the church. It gets a little confusing. If you have a question about that, we can, we can go down that path into the weeds at some, some other junction uh, in the time. Good. Okay. So... Confirmation completes baptismal grace and more perfectly binds us to the church in her mission of evangelization. So uh, let's just, we're going we're gonna to come back to that in a second, but we're going to take a brief detour into form and matter um, because it'll help us understand what's going on here. So what are the form and matter of confirmation? Well, the uh, matter is the anointing with chrism oil, symbolizing uh, divine abundance and favor through the laying on of hand, of a hand by the church's minister, symbolizing blessing. And then the form is be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when you're confirmed, we'll take chrism and we'll put it on your head and say be sealed will be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit or whatever whatever it is, whoever you are. Um, you can't give yourself the own sacrament, right? So <laughs> it's a little bit awkward demonstration there. Um, so you think about what, what does oil symbolize? We always say that the, the, the signs of the sacrament 
of the sacraments point, they, they're like in some way naturally ordered and then supernaturally ordered, of course, to what they're signifying that grace is doing. So what is oil, or what was oil used for? What is it used for still today? Um, what is it a sign of? Yeah, Seth? The Romans would use oil to clean themselves. Okay, yeah, good. Maybe after a bath you'd put oil on or something? It has a scent, good. It burns. What else? Well, it doesn't mix with water, which is interesting. <laughs> Agreed. It's just very interesting that the density of those two substances is different. What else? Uh, but I like it. Yeah, I mean, it's something. Yeah, it's on top of the water, actually. Yeah, right. So that's interesting. What else? Yeah. Maybe abundance. Abundance. Yeah. Good. Yeah. You don't really need oil. I don't want to get in trouble with the doctors here. Um, but you don't need oil. You need fat in your diet. But you don't, need, you don't have to have, like, olive oil that's pressed, you know, nice, uh, wonderful oil. Is that true? Okay, okay. <laughs> what else? Oil was used for, like, preparation for burial. Okay, yeah. So, like, anointing myrrh. That kind of thing. Yeah, so uh, the preparation for, like, healing of wounds as well. Strengthening before, uh, before like, uh, an athletic contest or a battle. Um, there was kind of this belief that if you rubbed oil on yourself, you, you would be strengthened in some way. Um, certainly in an athletic contest, I think they just did it so that they'd be slippery. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, if you were, like, fighting... You kind of would be able to get get out, right? But there's an abundance there. There's an abundance. And uh, oil is a sign of blessing then and a sign of strengthening. You think about sealing some someone, sealing someone or um, enclosing them, giving them the ability to defend and to spread, to actively um, act. So the character that is given by the sacrament of confirmation is the ability, um, is, is a mark which allows, it's the seal of the Spirit, which allows us as Christians to witness. And this is why uh, we decided, one of the reasons we decided to do the Bible study that we did, I did today, uh, to bear witness to bear witness to, to what? what? What are we bearing witness to? Well, to Christ, of course. Right? To, as the Spirit bears witness to, to Christ, so Christians, little Christ, are meant to bear witness to him in the world. And the sacrament of confirmation, um, sometimes it's contrasted with baptism in the sense that bapti- baptism gives the passive power, like in the sense of like the ability to receive, and confirmation gives the ability um, more fully to act. That's not a strict distinction, but it's, it's helpful, perhaps, as you're thinking about this. The ability to boldly defend the faith and to boldly uh, witness to Christ throughout um, the world. So the catechism, uh, 
offers a few different uh, aspects of this. So uh, it increases and deepens our baptismal grace. So there's a deeper inrooting um, in the fact that we're, we're set aside and consecrated um, through baptism. It roots us more deeply in the divine filiation by which we're able to cry out, Abba, Father. You think about Romans chapter 8 where Paul is talking about um, we don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us. Well, maybe there's something there. Like that's, that's exactly what confirmation is, is saying. You have the Spirit. You, you have a, a, the right to call upon God in those moments where you have no idea how to do that um, because the Spirit is with you. You have been um, sealed with it. It unites us more firmly to Christ more firmly to Christ. Um, so we adhere to him as our head. Um, sometimes there's kind of a, a military analogy here that we're, we're more clearly marked as a member of uh, like the, the army of Christ, as a soldier in the, um, in the army of Christ. And even in the church's tradition, there used to be uh, a little bit of a tradition, or there was a tradition in the right even, that the, that the bishop would, uh, when he confirms someone, he'd just like tap him on the cheek, right? Just a little bit of a, little bit of a hey, wake up. You know, you, you're getting ready to, to go out. Um, that's not what we do now, but the, the, the sacramental grace still prepares us for that type of witness. It renders our bond uh, with the church more perfect as well. Um, because it renders our bond with Christ more perfect. And then it gives us a special strength of the Holy Spirit to spread and defend the faith by word and action as true witnesses to Christ, to confess the name of Christ boldly and to never be ashamed of the cross. To never be ashamed of the cross. Um, so that's the sacrament of confirmation in, in brief. We could, we could talk more about it. Um, I want to invite Father uh, Doug to share a little bit about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which is one of the things uh, that we receive um, through baptism and through confirmation. There's like an increase in the gifts of the Spirit. Um, and when we say, uh, maybe he can touch on this a little bit, when we say the gifts of the Spirit, um, it's kind of like a little bit of a technical <laughs> use of that, that phrase. Um, there's also, you can talk about all sorts of gifts of the Spirit, um, particularly we're talking about the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. So Father Doug? Go ahead and do it. If I haven't introduced myself to uh, everybody yet, I'm Father Doug Jeffers. I'm uh, the new parochial vicar at the cathedral, so I just just got here last week. Um, so you'll be seeing more of me, but anyway, that's who I am, if you're wondering why there was another random priest in the RCIA class. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I myself went through RCIA. I became a Catholic when I was a... Uh, I became a Catholic when I was a freshman in college at, uh, at Texas A&M, and that was, whoop. <laughs> and that was in 2006-2007. Uh, so <clears throat> RCA is a special thing to me, and if there's anything I can do to support you guys as you're going through this process, uh, don't hesitate to let me know. So the gifts of the Spirit, anybody heard that, um, anybody heard that term before? What do you think it refers to? Mm -hmm. Like immaculate things that 
can't do, but God can. Okay, like things that. that men can't do, but God can. What else? Some characters that would be imprinted into your soul. Okay, something imprinted into your soul. Anybody else? So it's a gift, so it's something good. It's of the Holy Spirit, so it's not a gift you can get from, you know, the person sitting next to you. It's a gift that comes down uh, from on high. Does anybody know the traditional list of the gifts of the Holy Spirit? The fruits are a different list. The fruits come from St. Paul. The gifts of the Spirit come from a certain passage in Isaiah, where Isaiah is actually describing... um, Isaiah is actually describing the Messiah in that passage. He's describing the, um, the outpouring of the Spirit upon the Messiah, upon the Messiah who he's prophesying is going to come. But he lists them. Anybody know what they are? There's seven of them in the traditional list. Do you know what chapter? No. <laughs> Isaiah 11. If we look them up, we're going to get into the... That's all right. Wisdom, knowledge, understanding. Counsel, fortitude, might. Fear of the Lord. One more. Piety is the other one. Piety is the other one. That makes seven. Actually, the traditional list comes out of the version of Isaiah that's in the uh, that's in the Septuagint in the Greek Old Testament. So, if your your Bible, there's going to be a translation of the Hebrew uh, Isaiah. So you'll find six there. If you're interested, you can read all about that some other time. Okay, these gifts of the Holy Spirit: knowledge, wisdom, understanding. Those are gifts that seem like they perfect what part of you. Yeah, the intellect, the mind, knowledge, wisdom, understanding. These are different kinds of, these gifts have to do with different kinds of insights or different kinds of illuminations. And then there's uh, fortitude, piety, fear of the Lord. Those seem like gifts that perfect what part of you? Yeah? Yeah? The heart. Yeah, the heart. Yeah, emotionally. Yeah, the heart, the will. Those, those affect the will, what you choose to do, right? They're, um, they're strengthening gifts. We have kind of enlightening gifts and kind of strengthening gifts going on there. And then you have one that's kind of in between. That's the gift of counsel, the gift of figuring out what to do, which kind of involves both aspects, right? Both the intellect uh, and the will or the heart. And so the gifts of the Holy Spirit are given to us in baptism, and they are uh, strengthened and especially associated with the sacrament of confirmation. And what the gifts of the Holy Spirit theology says, they're poured into us and they become in us these dispositions that make us docile to receive the promptings of the Holy Spirit, the inspirations of the Holy Spirit. Some theologians compare them to the sails of a ship. If you have, um, if you have the wind blowing on a ship but the sails aren't up, then the ship's not going to go anywhere, right? But if there's sails on the ship, then whenever the wind blows, the ship is ready to catch the wind and the ship is ready to move. And that's an analogy to the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's these dispositions in us so that 
whenever the Holy Spirit blows, so to speak, whenever he comes enlightening, strengthening, moving, prompting, guiding, we have these sails that are ready to, to catch his wind. Sometimes the, theology also associates the gifts of the Holy Spirit with acting in a way that's higher than the ways that we normally think and act, especially when you think and act kind of without deliberation. Normally, when you have a problem that you're working through, you think, okay, what is the problem? What's the solution I'm trying to get? These are all my options. These are the pros and cons of each option. Which one am I going to choose? Which one is the best? And then you you kind of methodically work it out, right? But you've probably had experiences sometimes where you were faced with a really thorny problem and you had no idea how to work it out. And then all of a sudden, you know, you just saw, right? You just saw the solution. Maybe... That was the gift of counsel. Maybe that was the spirit moving you on a, on a higher plane, to, to think and act on a higher plane than you normally do. Some theological writers compare it to what happens on a natural level, say, when an artist gets an inspiration. You know, you usually use that word. You notice that? Inspiration coming from the, the spirit. He didn't work it out. He didn't plot it out. He didn't think it out. It just sort of a flash of creative insight, right? Uh, and you could find analogies like that in scientific discovery or in, um, or in uh, military decisions or in um, all kinds of things, right? That, that idea of some kinds of inspiration. So these are the gift of the Spirit. The more and more we tend to grow, the more and more we tend to grow in the spiritual life, the more those gifts of the Spirit kind of predominate. The spiritual writers say that in the beginning, there are... They're kind of latent. They happen. The spirit moves us slowly, but it's not that obvious. It's very hidden, kind of, the way the spirit moves. But the further we get in the spiritual life, the more those gifts of the spirit come into the forefront, the more it really becomes a matter of being led by the spirit, the more the Holy Spirit is active and guiding, and we are um, and we're passive and being led. And so maybe, you want to ask a question? Yeah? That's a great question. Does everybody have all of the gifts or does it depend? Um, All of those gifts are given in baptism and all of those gifts are strengthened in confirmation. So everyone um, everyone who's in the state of grace, everyone who has the grace of God living in their soul has all seven of those gifts of the Holy Spirit and they grow together. That's one of the That's true of virtues, too. It's not really possible to get one virtue really, really advanced and have the other one not even there at all, right? Like you say, I'm I'm really, 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 really courageous, but I'm completely not self-controlled. It's it's not going to happen, right? They kind of grow together. And the gifts of the Spirit are like that. They grow together. But that being said, there are special gifts of the Holy Spirit that have special relationships to certain people at certain times, Um, And a lot of theologians would say that the sacraments especially shape the gifts of the Holy Spirit to make us fitted for our vocation. Um, So that, um, for example, uh, the sacrament of holy orders has a special connection to the gift of counsel. Because because to be in holy orders, to be a priest means you have to govern the church. And to govern the church, you have to have uh, wisdom. You have to have insight. So there's kind of a a special connection there. And... uh, you could think about the gifts of the Holy Spirit that you would especially need for marriage. 
um, or the gifts of the Holy Spirit that you would especially need to go through a sickness that's going to be difficult, or the gifts of the Spirit that you would especially need um, to repent of certain sins and avoid temptation in the future. So that we could say that the sacraments especially kind of shape the gift of the Holy Spirit in us to especially strengthen and configure them for our own um, for our own thing. But they never really completely come undone from each other so that you can never really have one without the others being there too. That's a great question. So any other questions? Maybe. You want to touch on kind of the distinction between uh, the charismatic gifts and the gifts? That's a great question. Yeah. Anybody ever heard of the charismatic gifts? Do you know what they are? What are they? They're also called gifts of the Spirit sometimes. They're different than knowledge, understanding, wisdom, fortitude, piety, fear of the Lord. Would that be like prayer or tongues? Tongues, sure. Uh, A grace of tongues, being able to speak uh, strange languages, being able to understand strange languages, gifts of healing, um, gifts of prophecy. These kind of... uh, these are the charismatic gifts, or um, the graces gratis date, the graces freely given. Um, anybody think about what would be the difference between those gifts and the gifts of the Spirit? Okay, that's good. So the, um, the gifts of the Spirit are in the ordinary way of salvation. Every person who's baptized receives the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, And growing in virtue, getting closer to Christ, always involves that the seven gifts of the Spirit grow. But prophecy and healing and tongues and miracles, uh, these are not given to everybody. And growing closer to Christ does not necessarily mean that those things grow. You can become really, really holy and never, you know, do a miracle or something like that, right? Okay, that's one difference. So one is ordinary. The other one we say is extraordinary. The other really important difference has to do with um, why they are given. Charismatic gifts are more about building the church, not people, the person. Exactly. The charismatic gifts are given for the salvation of others. The charismatic gifts are given for the salvation of others. If God gives you a gift of prophecy... It's for the salvation of others, okay? And what that means is they don't have a necessary connection with sanctity. That seems really weird to say, but there are a lot of examples in the Bible of somebody who's not a very good guy giving a prophecy, right? So just because someone prophesies or even understands strange languages or whatever does not necessarily mean that they're holy. Uh, And in fact, if they become proud of their gift or something like that, it might be, it might be uh, that they're not growing in holiness, right? It might, it might be a struggle. So because of that, <clears throat> there's a difference in the way we desire the gifts. Everybody always should desire the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, we know that that's part of the plan of, that God has for us. If we had a, if we had a desire for the, uh, the charismatic gifts, though, it should be very... Uh, Attenuated. It really, it really, that desire really shouldn't be called into action unless we had a vocation from God, a special vocation from God, uh, to pursue that kind of, that kind of thing. Which is why in First Corinthians thirteen, 
the most famous passage read at weddings, right, about uh, St. Paul's praise of love. He starts by talking about the charismatic gifts. If there's prophecies, they will cease, right? If I speak of the tongues and if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm nothing, on and on and on and on, right? Talking about all the gifts, he says, but desire the more excellent gifts. And then he says, now I'll show you a more excellent way. And starts talking about the gift of love, the virtues. Any other questions? Uh huh. So, like, half like a lay person can, their goal shouldn't be extraordinary gifts, or, but can they still have extraordinary gifts? Could a lay person have extraordinary gifts? Yeah, absolutely. The charismatic gifts are not connected to um, the charismatic gifts are not connected to the hierarchy. So they they're given by the Spirit outside the order of the. Uh, they're not only given to you know, priests and bishops, and they're not necessarily given to, it doesn't come with your ordination or something, the gift of, a, the gift of healing. So they can come to lay or, they can come to lay or ordain people. Um, we don't, when I say we shouldn't desire them, I mean that's not the object of our spiritual life. And really it's, it's really better not to be pursuing that kind of thing unless God makes it clear that that's the gift he wants to give us. So we should be kind of, uh, Reluctant, I guess, if that makes any sense. Um, but they're separated from the hierarchy in the sense that they're not given by holy orders, but they're not separated from the hierarchy in that everything in the church is governed by the hierarchy. So if you're trying to discern whether a gift is an authentic gift from God, or if you're trying to figure out how you should use your gift, um, it would be wrong to say, you know what, I've got this gift of prophecy, so I'm just going to say and do whatever I want whenever I want to without any regard for good order and peace and harmony in the church, without any regard to what the hierarchy. It's the hierarchy that has to moderate the use of the, of the charismatic gifts and discern their authenticity too. Um, and there's, that's, also, that's also apparent in St. Paul's writings, right? He says that there's, um, there's people speaking in tongues during the middle of the mass and it's causing all kinds of chaos and he says don't do it <laughs> be silent and pray to God in tongues silently by yourself <laughs> and don't uh, don't disrupt what's going on so the charismatic ga- receiving the charismatic gifts are not a uh, are not a path to disrupt the life of the community or to a, or to avoid the governance of the community which is through the hierarchy um, and perennially down through the history of the church this has been kind of a problem and a tension. Um, you know, so the charismatic gifts, the charismatic aspect of the church and the hierarchical aspect of the church, they're supposed to be, uh, they're supposed to be in harmony and you get to have problems when they're, when they're thrown into tension with each other. Mas preguntas? So if you want to leave with this thought about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, to be, you think about what that would mean, to really be led by the Spirit. That's St. Paul's, Paul's phrase in Galatians, to be led by the Spirit. What it would really mean more and more to live your life as though the Holy Spirit were living it through you, right? As though the Holy Spirit were leading, prompting, guiding you uh, constantly. And that would be one way to describe the spiritual life, an effort to be more and more led by the Spirit so that you fade into the background 
and the spirit moves into the foreground of everything that you say and do uh, and are. And the more um, it's a gift, which means we can't produce it on our own. We can't say, you know what, tomorrow I'm going to have, I'm going to really have the gifts of the Holy Spirit in high degree. It's a gift that we have to receive, so our part really is to be docile. And the more we accept the Spirit's inspirations, the more the gifts are deepened in us. Yeah. Okay. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. God, our Father, we ask your grace upon us this evening, and especially that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. We ask that he would give us wisdom to illuminate our minds and to guide us, to help us see what is truly of value and what is truly lasting and what is not worth having and what is passing away. We ask that he would fill our hearts with the defire of the divine love so that we might direct all that we have and all that we are to your glory and not be held back by any selfishness or love of earthly pleasures or fear of earthly loss, but in all things might serve you with all that we have and are. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.